This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, thank you for spending your time listening to our podcast. I hope you find it helpful and that this adds a little something extra to your stockpile of recovery capital. I met my guests for this episode a few years ago at a meeting of the We Agnostics AA group in Kansas City, Missouri. I always admired her for her self-confidence, her thoughtfulness, and her independent spirit. So it was a real treat for me to sit down with her and get to know her better. I hope you liked the conversation as much as I did. I learned a lot from her. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at Soberlink.com BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering Soberlink and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now, episode 271, Embrace the Truth. I left the church in 2003 officially and procedurally because I had, meaning I gave back my credential, uh, but that didn't happen overnight. And it happened primarily because I had at that time shifted from what, you know, I would say were to the core beliefs of Christianity, you know, that Jesus saves us humans from sin. So um, after several years of really contemplating that or more than a several. Uh, then I decided to walk away from ordained ministry as a pastor, uh, mainly because I did not believe that. And therefore I didn't want to call others to believe what I wasn't willing to believe. So I wasn't, um, it, at first it wasn't about atheism at all. It was simply just a movement away from traditional Christianity. And then it became that later as I continued to dig into my own uh, belief system and, again, the, the, you know, the philosophies that I was willing to hold on to or let go of at that time. And you, you grew up in Illinois. Is it, was I did. It Springfield, I Illinois? In Springfield, Illinois, a little small town. Well, I'd call it a small town, but it is the capital of Illinois. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I am familiar with that area, uh, and that whole part of Illinois is pretty rural when you get when you get outside of uh, Springfield, isn't it? It is. Uh, that southern, like south central Illinois. Uh, I was only about eighty miles, or Springfield's only about eighty miles from St. Louis, so we went to St. Louis a lot more than we went to Chicago as a family, and 
Yeah, it it it's yeah. Once you move away from the cities, you know, in Illinois or in any place for that matter, you get out into the yeah, you get out into the hinterlands, <laughs> as we urbanists would say. Yes. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get into your story. Okay. Yeah. Whenever people ask me about my story, I'm like, what part? Where where should I begin? Oh my goodness. Because I did grow up in Springfield and I had really a, a a decent childhood, you know, I'd call it that. You know, my parents gave us the best that they could give. Both of my parents were um working, uh great jobs, you know, that allowed them to provide for us. So I grew up what would be considered very black middle class. Uh, we lived in uh neighborhoods. Not the suburb. I wouldn't say Springfield's a place that had a whole lot of suburbs. You know, a, a suburb for me would be a place outside of the city or around the city, like where there's an, I live in another city. Like here in Kansas City, there's Olathe, you know, there's Overland Park. Those are uh, actual cities. And those are what, you know, again, we urbanists, urban planners would consider as suburban areas around an urban area. So I didn't grow up in the suburbs. I grew up in, um, in the neighborhoods that were growing in the city, more uh, middle class neighborhoods, mostly predominantly white, uh, to be truthful. And then we grew up, I grew up Catholic, born and raised Catholic and went to Catholic high schools all the way. K through 12, I was uh, a student at a Catholic schools and also uh, Catholicism was my family's practicing religion. Or it's what we practiced as a family. So that was, um, you know, that was what I grew up in. But I mean, you know, my parents also divorced. So uh, I did experience, a, you know, the breakup of their marriage as a child, adolescent. And um, I, that was probably one of the greatest factors uh, that led to my choice in a college and where I wanted to go to college. I wanted to get far away uh, from my family. I mean, that was my that was what was in my head at that time. So I wanted to go away. Uh, move away from kind of the pain of that. And uh, I did that. I went to Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. So I went to undergrad at Clark Atlanta University, which is an historically black college, which, uh, you know, was a huge difference from what I had grown up in, uh, in terms of institutionally, right? At school, day to day, surrounded by um, many black youth like myself. Uh, That was new for me because I grew up in an environment where I was not surrounded by many black youth. I was actually surrounded by many white youth and white authorities. Yeah. Clark Atlanta was great. Uh, I enjoyed it totally. Actually, I became the first Miss Clark Atlanta. (laughs) I saw saw that. (laughs) Yeah, I was a homecoming queen, which is a big deal. I mean, if anybody, uh, any of your listeners watch like Beyonce's homecoming, uh, that, documentary is the way that it kind of is, right? Yeah. In terms of what homecoming is uh, at an HBCU, um, it is a major event. And I had the opportunity to be uh, the first Miss Clark Atlanta because Clark Atlanta, Atlanta University, which was a graduate institution, merged with Clark College. So when I went to school, it was Clark College. And anyhow, so that's that's the experience I had. I also uh, was and is, uh, uh, I am a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, which is a, a very significant organization of Black women, college educated. Um, I think that actually DST, uh, 
I'm saying it for sure, it is open to to all women, actually, but primarily it's going to be black women who um, who are members and who all of the uh, they call them the divine nine, all of the sorority, black sororities or black Greek letter organizations were established before the Great Depression, except one. And that is a major, major piece of information uh, to say how black women and men who were college educated at that time were um, you know, working on their own social organization, thinking about the networks that they could develop and they should be developing, especially in a world that was really um, racially discriminatory against them. That's a kind word for it. But <laughs> at that time, uh, they would have been experiencing in the 20s and 30s, you know, they would have been experiencing some of the greatest uh, hatred, racial hatred um, that we have witnessed in our country's short uh, tenure. So anyway, yeah, it was, it was a huge accomplishment. And uh, I saw the way that the women on my campus, Clark Atlanta, were conducting themselves. And I was excited to, you know, to, uh, if you will, apply to be one of them. Um, and then being a part of Delta Sigma Theta, is, it's, it, it was at that time, you know, pretty arduous. You pledged. Uh, so uh, you were on a line with other women and I was on a line with 19 other women. And uh, we kind of lived and breathed together for quite a few months before we became members. We initiated, you know, as, as it is. But anyway, so that was, yeah, that was, I was on the road at that time to, um, getting a degree in political science, uh, which I did. But I, my first uh, endeavor in terms of my education was to go to law school. So when I was at Clark Atlanta, I, I, I was interested, in, you know, I wanted to finish my degree and my bachelor's in political science, but uh, that's because I was uh, interested in becoming an attorney one day. And so that uh, was a major factor in my work at that time. And actually I did go to law school. I just didn't continue. You don't see that very prominently. If you do Google me, uh, you'll see other degrees, but I did enter law school after several years. And after my first master's and working a bit for a couple of state governments, uh, I did go to uh, law school briefly in Houston, Texas at Thurgood Marshall school of law, another HBCU. Yes. So uh, Thurgood Marshall School was was phenomenal. I enjoyed it totally. But that is where I entered um, like ministry, right? Really local church ministry. I got active with a I got active with a large suburban black church there, United Methodist. Uh, By then I had already switched, uh, made a, a, a significant step toward you know, being a Protestant versus uh-huh. being a Catholic. Yeah, that, that was, was a good. big move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do that. Like uh, out through, at the end of my high school years, I was very aware that I was very disenchanted with Catholicism. So becoming Protestant wasn't uh, a, a stretch for me. You know, it was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. Um, which so really I did, from a actually, young age, you were pretty thoughtful about your beliefs, oh, yeah. weren't you? That's really, you know, that's really who I am. I'm very curious. I was, I was a bookworm. I uh, spent a lot of time in libraries because my mother is an educator. So I would, you know, on the 
I would take the bus sometimes after school to go to the library at the institution where she worked and I would wait for her. Uh, I would, you know, to go home with her, but I would be in the library and that was my thing, you know, being in the library and being alone with my thoughts and exploring other people's thoughts. That was a big, and that is a big part of who I am even today. So it sounds like for so far at this point, man, your life is just going pretty smooth. Uh, it seems like you're a pretty confident young woman and you're just, you're just following the path to, to have a career. Well, yeah. Um, smooth is, it sounds good. It sounds kind of picturesque, right? However, you know, in any family, there's always the ups and downs. And so, like I mentioned, my parents, we divorced. So we experienced that as a family and uh, emotionally, yeah, I, I also was, you know, dealing with that. Uh, but yeah, I had <clears throat> been able to move into adulthood uh, with a lot of great opportunities. Uh, I would say that, you know, I, I enjoyed being a student, right? I enjoy, again, obviously I'm a professor now, but I, I enjoyed um, learning, you know, and, and it is it, uh, a thing I love to do even today to learn new things and uh, encourage others to learn, motivate them to learn. That's a big part of my life. So, yeah. So uh, yeah, when I, I was in Houston, Texas, I it was there that I was active in uh, a United Methodist Church with a pretty famous pastor at the time, uh, Kirby John Codwell. If anybody, any of your listeners are, you know, listen from Texas, they'll know who he is or was. He was the pastor of a very large uh, black United Methodist Church in the sub. Now, that wasn't in the suburbs of Houston, but I became active. And this is where things really began to shift for me uh, with a local church. Uh, in the downtown or central business district of, of Houston that was just getting off the ground. And what it was was like a satellite church of Kirby John Codwell's uh, Windsor Village was the name of Kirby John Codwell's church. Uh, but uh, they started a, a, did a startup of a community, a church, even where they weren't so big on calling it a United Methodist Church. Uh, but they appointed two local church pastors to kind of work uh, with Kirby John, or they came out of Windsor Village to primarily serve those who lived on the streets in Houston, Texas. And that was wonderful for me. <clears throat> I got very, very active in it. I mean, I was a part of the ministry there. I was, uh, I led the hospital ministry. I was coordinating that with other uh, members who were also active in ministry. I eventually started teaching Bible study, huge Bible studies that would meet on Saturdays. I, um, I mean, I preached, you know, I, I did it all there, the, the, all that you would do as a minister. And so that consumed me. And I was in law school at the time, which also, I also enjoyed thoroughly. Again, I, I was always a, a good student. And so what happened was I, I, it consumed me so much that ministry consumed me and I, and I loved it. And I thought it was just amazing. It, it really, uh, I was like on fire, you know, I would go to halfway houses with my Bible and uh, do, conduct Bible studies. Uh, you know, I would, it would just be doing all of these things in the name of, of my faith at the time. And also in the name of service, because all of these things, you know, that I've been mentioning uh, the, the work that I was doing, 
the work that I wanted to do in my adult life was really about serving others. And so uh, being a part of, and that was St. John's uh, Community Church. Actually, it's the church now that Beyonce affiliated herself with. Uh, they have two dynamic pastors. I believe they're both still uh, pastoring the church there, Rudy and Juanita Rasmus, uh, husband and wife team. It was just phenomenal. And I was just on fire for that. And um, I left Houston kind of unexpectedly when it was clear that even though, I mean, I love doing it, but I, I was like, I got to go. I got to do, I got to do the next thing. And Houston didn't seem to be offering except for that ministry. Moved back to Illinois. Uh, I did, of course, I was working all these different places uh, in and out of working, I should say. <laughs> um, I became active with a residential school for children with developmental disabilities, loved the work there, but also active with the church in Illinois. And I um, started on the track to a professional or what you call vocational ordained ministry through the United Methodist Church by way of Springfield, Illinois. So I was back home. And of course, that led to another uh, move, which was a seminary. And that was here in Kansas City. In Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So that brought me to Kansas City in the 90s as a, as a, a candidate for ordained ministry in the United Methodist Church. Okay. Mm-hmm. And did you stay in Kansas City after you um, got out of Finished. the school? No. Uh, I, I pastored here uh, and I also was... I was appointed my last couple of years of seminary to pastor, even though I was living here. So I was traveling back and forth for about a year and a half to Marshall. Uh, if you know where Marshall is. Yeah, Slater, Marshall, Missouri. Marshall, Missouri. They talk about rural parts. Uh, yes. So I was going back and forth from Marshall to Kansas City. Uh, I have family in Missouri. Both my parents have roots in Missouri. So that was kind of familiar territory for me. And also, you know, I didn't say that after I left Clark Atlanta, I went to the University of Missouri. So I'm uh, I got a master's in public administration from there before I went to law school. So Missouri is very familiar to me. So, no, I didn't stay because, you know, at, at that time I was like, I'm moving up in the United Methodist Church. And I took a, a charge or an appointment in Illinois at the University of Illinois. That's how I ended up there. Um, I was pastoring there. And it was there that I, um, well, I pastored with two other clergy persons at that point. And Marshall and Slater, I had my own churches. And those churches were part of what was the legacy of the segregated ch- church, racially segregated in the United Methodist Church. So when I, yeah, so when I, uh, because United Methodism um, is different from, say, African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was uh, the break, you know, where the break off happened in the, oh gosh, I want to say the, I can't remember the, the establishment of the AME church. I want to say it was even perhaps hmm, the late 19th century, but the AME church and the United Methodist church were, you know, they're both Methodists, but they're, they were racially very different. And then both, yeah, those who stayed, the blacks who were part of the United Methodist Church also experienced a very racially segregated situation. So when I took the charge in uh, Marshall, those two churches were formerly of the colored section of oh. the United Methodist Church. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, even the United Methodist Church is having its own issues today with uh, other splits, right, around sexual 
orientation and, and what have you. So anyway, so yeah, so when I went to the University of Missouri, I, I mean, I loved it. I was pastoring. I was doing all the things that a pastor does, um, including writing sermons, giving sermons, hospital uh, visitations, chaplain type ministry, work with people, just being, you know, being a pastor is like being a civic leader. I mean, people, you live uh, somewhat very visible. Well, you live a visible life, you know, you live in that fishbowl, right? So I could say, you know, that part of my life was really, uh, I was really aware of how much responsibility I had. I was aware of how much how many eyes were on me and everything, but I was kind of like, okay with that. You know, I hadn't done anything in my life that I needed to be ashamed of, you know, or like, like I didn't need to be there. So uh, that was a big part of it. Yeah. So I was a part of that church, but in being there and also having had at that point, the benefit of getting a master of divinity <laughs> along the way from St. Paul school of theology here in Kansas city, you know, I had time to work through a lot of my own theological um, beliefs, and I went on leave after a year there. Um, I had my own kind of uh, disheartening moment moments at that particular congregation with two of uh, my my colleagues at that time. I wasn't really happy with that, so I took that time to assess uh, what I wanted to do from there. Uh, because I knew theologically I was already kind of on the fringe, meaning uh, at that point, you know, I knew that I didn't believe in Jesus as as a savior, as a personal savior. I also didn't believe I had let go of this idea of sin. Okay, right? interesting. Like, but not necessarily an atheist. Oh, no. But, yeah. but just in that theological, I guess, point. Yeah, I guess, in that theological yeah. world, I had had enough information at that time that um, I had set aside See, I was raised, born and raised Catholic, so Catholics believe in what original sin, the idea of original sin. And I grew up with that. And that always did cause me some problems and think, okay, wait a minute, we're saying through no fault of our own, just by being born, you know, we're sinful. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so as I continue to learn more about that, you know, I just, it just disintegrated uh, that idea. Um, I, I respect what people, humans, we humans have done to try to make sense of ourselves and our world. But that was a, an idea, a belief that I let go of uh, pretty much after after I was at Illinois. But I was always already on my way there with that, you know, with with, you know, not believing in original sin, not believing in the idea of Jesus as a, a uh, therefore, I mean, if there's no original sin, there's no sin to be safe from. Then, you know, I was like, well, what, what is Jesus? You know, who is Jesus? You know, I mean, not that I discount the figure if he actually lived, but uh, I saw him at that time as a revolutionary figure, a more prophetic figure, uh, someone who uh, challenged the structures of his time um, and was assassinated for doing that. Right. And, and lost his life. As a result, uh, that I believe is the fate of many who will challenge the powerful structures, principalities, powers of their time, even to this day. So that uh, experience, which I was only for a little while, I went to Massachusetts because I was I also picked up another master's while I was at the University of Illinois in urban planning. 
which is another profession uh, that's really about serving the public. Uh, again, I was drawn to it for that reason. And then I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, I, I was on leave uh, the last couple of years. I was in Champaign-Urbana all the while in school. And also I was teaching at Parkland Community College. A community. I started teaching. My formal teaching career started there. Even though I was previously, you know, a graduate assistant and I was doing teaching and research for professors, uh, I do mark my experience at Park, Parkland Community College as my first, like, formal teaching, um, uh, you know, again, experience. So anyway, but then I moved to Massachusetts to pursue the Ph.D. finally. And I will say, even when I was in seminary, I had a professor who was like, the world needs you, you know, <laughs> but he said, but he said, we need you in academia. And I just want to really encourage you to go on for the PhD. And I tell you, I was like, no, I'm tired. I'm done. I've, I've had enough education. Don't you think that three masters, you know, is or two masters at that time was enough. And um, lo and behold, yeah, picked up one more master's along the way. And then I ended up at the U University of Massachusetts Amherst, where I was working on my PhD. And, and yeah, so I, and I finished it there, but a lot happened there too. Oh my gosh. That's what I'm saying. I feel like I'd be talking forever to, to truly share it all. But yeah, really my engagement with academic institutions has been central uh, to my life and to shaping who I am today. Yeah. yeah, and you've contributed a lot uh, to um, to the public uh, with with everything that you've written and what you've what you've learned. Um, even the the work that I that I read, I, I I learned a lot. And but I've never read about anything like that before, so I never really get, had given it any thought. So tell me, during this time, was substance abuse ever an issue, or was there any kind of problematic behaviors that you were kind of dealing with at the time? Well, yes and no. Okay, so. In terms of alcohol in college, uh, I mean, I was pretty much straight, straight, straight and narrow. Um, however, I had boyfriends who liked to drink a whole heck of a lot when I was in undergrad. Uh, drinking wasn't a, a big thing for me in undergrad, but it was for the men that I chose. So I saw it that way. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember leaving a relationship because I felt like he he had, he was drinking too much, you know, and it was affecting our relationship. Uh, I didn't uh, begin to drink excessively until, oh gosh, I was in Massachusetts. Um, so that's where alcohol became more uh, of a constant in my life, you know, used it for more than just one or two glasses, you know. Um, I think that yeah, just and, and mainly to cope with the stress of uh, being a PhD student, right? Um, yeah, I think that that's that's where it began to kind of um, balloon, right? Uh, that's where I began to uh, see my heaviest drinking, and and by then I was in my thirties, you know, so I had moved through uh, my early adulthood. I would call that. Uh, into more, you know, those solid years, that prime of your life and what have you. So I think at that time too, I felt like, well, I can handle this, you know, it's just, you know, 
is it's, it's something I can handle. I never saw it as at that time, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't admit it, you know, and that's part of alcoholism, right? You, you, you want to deny that you actually are, uh, you have a problem and that, you know, you're overdoing it, you know, <laughs> and this could be very, very harmful uh, eventually if not addressed. So, yeah, but I, cause I thought about that earlier. Um, I probably thought about that once I really began to think in terms of sobriety uh, of, of how much alcohol was a part of the, the, the men's lives that I knew, you know, it was the black men who I was involved with, they used alcohol or they used some other thing. So I um, define addiction, not simply as, you know, an addiction to alcohol. People are addicted to a lot of things, but any behavior that a person uses to, um, to escape from maybe pain or memories um, and they can't, you know, stop, you know, it's compulsive, uh, any behavior that could be sex. And I would say that sex was definitely a part of a lot of the, the men's lives that I was involved with. I mean, I, I didn't feel like I was um, needed to have sex in order to feel better, but I, I know that the men that I was with did uh, a lot of them. Um, But yeah. um, So at that point I began to see, you know, see myself drink more uh, later you know, that became an issue, you know, much later even than that, because I wasn't willing to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a good place with it. You know, I thought it was just, you know, something I could get a hold of. And it it, it may have been, uh, it's just that I didn't, I continued to come home, you know, to a glass or two or three of wine, you know, every, every night. And, uh, Anyway, so that's where it really began to shift for me. Yeah. But also I had many other shifts at that time, right? I was, uh, I had left the church. I left the church procedurally in 2003. And uh, a big part of my pain at that time was really being able to find work because I, here I was, I had devoted a, a decade to being this minister. Right. And, um, while, you know, I knew how much of a leader I had become and how many administrative skills I had developed and how much I had even begun to write, you know, writing became central to my life. And I mean, I was, you know, aligned with people, you know, on the national level on state level. I was working. I started working for a state lawmaker who became a good friend of mine Uh in Springfield, Massachusetts. While I was in Massachusetts, I lived in Springfield. I lived in Holyoke. Um, but uh, I think all of that was just my way of trying to figure all of those changes out, you know? Um, yeah. But it wasn't until I came here to Kansas City, I moved back to Kansas City in 2015, that I realized I've got to do something about you know, my use of alcohol, my abuse of it, you know. That might have been around the time that I met you, I wonder. Uh, you met me, had to be after 2017. So I had been here two years. I was teaching at University of Missouri, Kansas City. I was working with an institute there. Um, I was doing a, a number of things. And, I, I, you know, I've had to juggle a lot of different jobs in my life. because, Like I said, because what happens is that, well, I see those things as important and, and again, administrative. 
I've had a hard time like figuring out how do I market all of this? You know? <laughs> how do I market it? And I mean, now I'm very comfortable with the fact that I am extremely, I'm multi-talented. I can do many things well, uh, not just one thing. Whereas, you know, you have some people, they uh, have a job and they do that one thing for all of their lives. Right. But, well, that's not me. Um, I have been able to do many things. The, the thing that's most important right now, for example, is my writing, you know, as well as my teaching. And so I spend the bulk of my energy uh, focusing on that. And also, so when you met me, I decided I was going to uh, get sober, you know, so to speak, right? And sobriety for me does not mean abstinence. And so we've talked about that before. You knew it when I met in the context of my dealing with, um, you know, my, my sobriety, my the face thing, I've got to be a recovering person. Yes. Uh, I've come to understand, this is really interesting. I, I did a, um, I did a little solo episode that I put on YouTube uh, last week. What is recovery? And I was going by the substance abuse and mental health services administration of recovery and nowhere in the definition does it mention abstinence or sobriety. What it talks about is a process of change uh, through which we live a self-directed life and try and strive to live to our fullest potential, something along those lines, uh, something along those improve our health, our health and well-being. You know, and, and, and through a process of change like that. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, and I was talking to someone else the other day who has an online kind of a, kind of a, I don't know, a therapy type thing online where they're helping people on the spectrum of addiction. So there's, it's a huge spectrum and not, not does everybody have to have entire abstinence as their goal. And we were talking about that too. So it's a whole, it's a different way of thinking, you know, for a lot of people who live in a black and white world where they're, it's just either or. Yeah. And that's, I think you've said the key, key word there, key phrase, which is black and white world. Our world is not so black and white, not for me. And, you know, when I initially started going to 12 step groups for, you know, on the, on the issue of alcohol, because I was also uh, going to 12-step groups on the issue of codependency. Yeah, you, you must have recognized that you were having all these relationships with guys for whom alcohol was important, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and my number one compulsion still is, well, I'm better because right, I, I've worked on it. It was, was codependency, and meaning that compulsive response that I've learned to have to fix Right. To con- try to control for what I felt was out of control, uh, to try to please others, you know, by changing myself and not being authentically who I am. Um, so I was already working on that and doing better <laughs> within a 12 step environment, in a 12 step program. And I still go to uh, 12 step meetings for codependency as I go to 12-step meetings uh, for alcoholism. Yeah. Because I think that, I, I again, I see myself as a recovering person. I could also probably think of other things that I need to recover from, you know. Isn't life itself something to recover from? <laughs> and one of the reasons that, you know, you and I talked about my being on here and, and whether I was going to use my real name and all that stuff 
one of the things that has to happen to break down the stigma of alcoholism or whatever isms there are is that we we have to face it. We have to name it. We have to look head on those who, for those of us who are willing to, to be out, if you will, that is how it's going. That's one way of how the social uh, environment is going to change when it comes to alcohol. Uh, I don't, for example, I don't like joke about alcohol with others and, you know, make light of it because I know how dangerous it can be. I mean, thankfully, I never had a situation where uh, it caused me great embarrassment. (laughs) Uh, um, But I know many who have. Uh, I've also seen many of my ex-lovers or friends um, and current friends as well as ex-friends uh, suffer tremendously because of the, you know, of their of their addictions, you know, with especially with alcohol and and other addictions too. But uh, so I do think that if people are going to think any differently about these addictions and how we experience them or why we experience them, we have to begin to talk openly and honestly and name those things. Right? We have to say there is recovery. There is help or hope, you know, we can get beyond this. Like, I don't encourage people who are new to, um, if they want to abstain, then great. You know, I I don't discourage anybody from that. And I say, you know, you got to find your, uh, your process, you know, what works for you, you know, and if you know that you're a person who cannot stop yourself, Okay, then, yeah, maybe abstinence is the thing, because you have to think about why can't I stop myself? We're really fortunate in this day and age that there are a lot of different options for people too. you know, there's medically assisted uh, treatment for um, alcohol use disorder that has been that's successful for a lot of people, depending on where you fall on the, on the spectrum of, of the problem and so forth. And so, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've learned through some of the things that I've been doing recently is the first thing I think um, one needs to do if they're getting into recovery is ask themselves, what is, what does it look like for me? What is my goal? Um, what do I want? Uh, what do I want my life to look like? And there's a process you go through and you can have people to help you and, and find your way. Exactly. Cause you, uh, again, there are, you know, well, one of my favorite um, thinkers, teachers is Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, Dr. Mate helped me to think through my own process, you know, which was, you know, he, he helped to, uh, me to understand what addiction does to the body, right? And to mainly to the brain that, uh, that addiction actually is something that has affected our brains, uh, that a person who is suffering with addiction quite possibly suffered from some kind of trauma to where the inhibitors in their brain don't work properly, right? The endorphin system uh, has been damaged uh, as well as, you know, we, we get that hit of dopamine, you know, when we're doing whatever it is we're doing to make us feel good. So anyway, he helped me to see that, hey, this is, this is something uh, that's happening in the brain. 
And people just believe, you know, like Nancy Reagan and others, you can just say no. <laughs> no, you really have to begin to, to heal the brain. And I really believe that where 12-step groups help because that's just the first step. That's not treatment per se, but 12-step groups help in that it, it helps the person to get in a community of acceptance and compassion. And they begin to, you know, redo the rewiring that's, that's necessary. You know, I'm glad you've said that. It's so important, I think, for anyone to understand that any 12-step group or even non-12-step group, Smart Recovery, Life Ring, any of these um, peer support groups are not treatment. They're support. And there's a big difference between treatment and support. And I do, you know, we just talking about process. You know, some people uh, need the treatment, right? Uh, they need to go much further than just the support group, you know. I mean, it's a great thing to have support, but for someone who has been drinking chronically, um, you know, they, they really need more than just, you know, a group around them that they're meeting with on, you know, once. Well, I know most of the people that I know through AA are going to meetings at least three times a week, if not more, every day in some cases. Uh, and, uh, hey, I'm all for it, too. I'm, I'm like encouraging because again to be a recovering person you have to be willing to to uh to do the work right and and anyway so that's i was willing i became willing uh to do the work on myself uh to listen to others to learn to change my behaviors right to uh, I'm I'm a person obviously who doesn't have problem with change overall, (laughs) all the changes I've been through in life. Now, by the time that you got involved with 12 steps, um, you at this point were identifying as an atheist. Oh yes. So in 2010, see, I left the church in 2003 officially. So it wasn't until 2010 that I was willing to call myself an atheist. uh, Therefore a person I have absolutely no belief in gods or supernatural uh, beings or others working on our behalf. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're uh, quite I open have, about that in all your writings and so forth. I, oh, everywhere yes. I, I see you're, you're open about that. You have no issue with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's funny because that's what I'm saying. Well, wait a minute now. I can't get on the show and not be open about uh, um, recovery. Yeah, right. you know? know, or hide who I am because I have. Well, there's a, almost a stigma to being an atheist in a way, isn't there? It's a very big stigma. Like it is the elephant in the room. I mean, because what do you do when, you know, like I've been at work in work settings, you know, and people, I sneeze or something, you know, whatever. And somebody's like, God bless you. And I'm looking at them. My eyes are like popping out of my head. Like, uh, you don't have to say that to me, but, you know, I appreciate the thought, but when the reason I tend to say something is because of number one, I'm not going to say it back. I'm like, if somebody's waiting on me to tell them, God bless you, you know, you'd be waiting forever. Um, and also, again, I don't order my world or my um, identity, my well-being on the idea of, you know, a God taking care of it. And, and I don't like to promote that because what it when I have to go along with that in, in settings and public settings, um, it's, it's uncomfortable for me because that's really not who I am. And I don't want to just give the appearance of, you know, being a believer in God's uh, plural. Um, 
so that other people can feel comfortable, right? I, I, I try to live a very authentic life, uh, which is what I did, you know, when I, again, when I left the local church, local church ministry, that was uh, a move toward greater authenticity, right? A, a, a move toward to embrace who I had become at that time. And the same is true for me now, you know, who I have become as a recovering person uh, from more than one addiction in, in life, you know, has to do with embracing, you know, again, who I am. But that, that's about power. Right. Because I think that a, in all these addictions and all these things that we're doing in our lives to run away, we're running away from ourselves. We're just running away from who we are and what we went through. And we find power in embracing the, the truth about ourselves. It's where when we don't want to embrace the truth about who we are, what we came from, uh, what we're part of, you know, that we run into problems in life. And we also are disempowered that way. Wow. I, I think that is so true. I think so too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's a big part. That was a big part of the process for me was just understanding who I was. And, and I tell you what, it's been probably a lifelong process of becoming more and more, I guess, who I authentic to the world, you know, that's right. Um, so did you have any conflict um, with your atheism and the 12 steps or how did you resolve that? If you, any conflict you had? Oh, plenty of conflict. Uh, meaning, yeah, because I, and I think when you remember early in meeting you, I, I was, we were going to the place over at um, All Souls. Yep. All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church. Unitarian Church. Okay. The Unitarian Church is probably cl closer to atheism than. Yeah. I think they had an atheist there. minister. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now that is good, but it didn't mean that our meetings and the people who came there, you know, because, you know, part of these 12 steps is not excluding people. So we'd have meetings where people come and they believe in uh, the God, um, you know, paradigm. Um, so, yeah, you know, during a meeting, you know, there's you'd get on the, on the one extreme, you'd get those who are like, anti-theist right uh, you know like totally against any you know they want to burn the church down basically <laughs> exactly you get that uh the richard dawkins types you know <laughs> like, and then on the other hand you'd get the ones who come into the room you know who believe that the only way you can be and live a sober life and be so sober is with the help of a god so, yeah, I kind of lived in that, you know, for a little bit until um, I found my groove and and finding my groove had to do with, you know, there are people who are coming to these rooms who are like minded like yourself. I mean, I think the first time I really kind of addressed you in a meeting or whatever, and I know we don't always cross talk in the meetings, you know, but I was just almost in tears and realizing what you had done in even, uh, you know, establishing an, an agnostic group, you know, and I knew from experience, my own experience of establishing anything new, how hard that is. Uh, there is their scholarship. Yes. On the hatred people have toward atheists uh, being uh, vitriolic, violent, uh, and often because people have no clue uh, as to what it, who or what an atheist he is. Yeah, so I experienced that some in, in that regard, but in my personal life, absolutely. 
uh, in my personal life, I, ex- I experienced it. I'm no doubt in my mind that I haven't gotten jobs because people Googled me and found out I'm an atheist. Okay, bad. That's that. And that's that. You know, they'll make up another reason as to why they can't hire me. But um, I, I've known when, I felt like I've known when it's been because they learned that I was an atheist. And, you know, with black folks, <laughs> you know, oh my goodness, because it unfortunately in a very kind of uh, stereotypical way, black folks are considered to be inherently spiritual <laughs> or, you know, I don't even use that term, you know, so inherently religious. Um, I, again, I understand totally why many Black people, African-Americans and others uh, who, you know, have a connection to Caribbean or uh, any any group of people who's been the subject of colonialism and colonial activity. I understand they, you know, that being able to project onto a higher power the love that, you know, you want, you know, or the love that you need or the acceptance that's important, that becomes a, an important thing, right? You know, it's like this higher power is going to take care of this. Again, like I said, I get it, especially in dire situations where, you know, I can imagine what my ancestors who lived, you know, 50 to 100 years ago here on this this land, in this country, experience day to day. So I understand why they deflected to a higher power, but also that that wasn't all they did, right? Because there's certainly those who were African, who were African and becoming African-American were doing to assert their humanity, uh, to, to say, this is who we are, <laughs> to say, we're not going to be afraid to be culturally black. Right, a culturally African, culturally American too, you know. So, anyway, so I see why that was done, and I, I respect it in that sense. But I also respect those who also understood that we have to take control of our humanity here. We have to assert it. We have to be who we are, and that, notwithstanding what's happening with you know our belief in a God who's doing it, but we have to be willing to get out there. Right. We put our bodies on the line and I'm working on an online course right now that will be um, available by video. I will actually like be in a studio and produce this thing uh, with an organization. But one of the aspects of it is talking about the ways in which black people, for example, have, have their own their children were willing to be on the front line. Right. The, 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 this terrible thing called white supremacy and 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 articulated as racism and, and racial discrimination, racial violence in our world, economic genocide of, of Black people. Uh, I've worked for people who call themselves as uh, justice-oriented, justice-filled people, but they will, they will keep uh, Black women and men from making the money they need to support themselves. I work with people who ne- I, you know, thought would have understood the importance of uh, insurance, you know, you know, things like that. But anyway, what I'm saying is um, children were willing, Black children like Ruby Bridges were willing to put themselves in harm's way because they believed in their humanity, right? It is not like, oh, we need to be a just society that's working for good and they they wanted to assert their their humanity, right? And that's that's the thing that again I'm convinced now that is the most important 
an empowering thing of who we are as humans just to be who we are. Assert our own individual humanity, yeah. our own we, pride in ourselves. But we are also individuals. And so it's okay to have your hair natural. It's okay, you know, and to embrace it because one of the early things that um, Africans were um, prohibited from doing was embracing their culture, embracing who they are. You cannot express it. You cannot say. It's similar to what we're seeing and happening in Florida right now, right? You don't say gay, right? Anything to silence the people from connecting them so they won't connect to who they are authentically. That is, again, a colonial move. And so with uh, colonial power, and, and when I say colonial, I mean uh, coming from a power that wants to overtake or invade another group of people, their land, their resources, uh, their, their bodies, and selling them, you cannot express yourselves. So yes, I believe, like many other great thinkers, that are one of the defining aspects of democracy or in the whole world that we know of is freedom of expression, hands down, you know. And we, we didn't really dig into womanism, but being a womanist, okay, what I learned to be a womanist around other w- women in the academy or other educators, Black women who, number one, had challenged feminism. So that was one aspect of it. But also they were willing to be who they uh, were authentically, also claim their cultural identity, right? To do research out of the lived experience of um, of Blackness, you know, of the cultural Blackness. And then also to just assert a kind of, of love, again, but, but a kind of power that comes from embracing those things about ourselves. And that's what I learned. I was at the time, I was here in Kansas City when I first kind of began to associate myself with being a womanist uh, with Dr. Emily, Reverend Dr. Emily Towns. She taught here at St. Paul School of Theology. She's one of the most uh, visible womanists in the country. Uh, now the dean, if she hasn't retired at uh, Vanderbilt uh, School of Divinity and, and others, but she was part of that first generation of womanists in the country. So I learned from her. And one day I was, uh, she was, we were walking out of the cafeteria and I was kind of walking around her alongside of her. And I was almost like running to catch up to her. And I was like, Emily, Emily, you know, how do you know that you're a womanist? How do you know? And she's like, well, she just stopped. She looked at me and she's like, yeah, it is like this confessional thing. It's like something you come to about yourself. Like womanism as opposed to feminism is not something you're going to learn in school, right? It's something you're going to understand about yourself, who you are. Uh, in Out of Black culture, there's this term called being womanish. And Alice Walker is also the other one who brought this term to life and said, you know, to be womanish, she gives a four-part definition in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. But to be womanish is is to love yourself regardless. I mean, that that is like part of the definition, but it's one of the um, key phrases that I use to order my life. You know, it's to be womanist is to love myself regardless, regardless of the cost, regardless of who else doesn't like it, you know, regardless. So for me, that's that's the the heart of it is is that love. And when you do that, you're going to be empowered. You're going to feel empowered you're going to act out of 
I guess you could say, again, out of power. So I'm not talking about the goosey, goosey, loosey feelings we have of love of someone. I'm talking about the empowerment that comes from being loved and from being loving to oneself and to others. And that too is what Gabor Mate talks about. If you, if you really listen to him, you know, for many times, you'll see that he says the reason that people are turning to drugs, alcohol, to their addictions is because they did not get the love they should have gotten as children. And that makes all the difference is if you get the first two or three years, right, you're, you're good to go. But when you don't get it later in life, you'll be trying to fill up that space with all these other things. Well, you know, that was a great summary of how I would understand where you're coming from in your recovery and, and everything that I've read that, that you have written and, and, I, and I think is beautiful. I will also point out to the listeners, if you want to learn about womanism, don't learn it from YouTube. Yes. <laughs> you have done you have done some work on me. Do a little reading, Alice Walker. Yes, do some reading. And plus you're not gonna learn about it in a day. <laughs> okay. You know, just because even hearing me, this is good that you've heard me, but there are many womanists in this country and they've written amazing work, but you you won't learn about it on on uh well I don't think accurately. So. No, no. <laughs> Especially because there are lots of critics of what womanism is. Oh, okay. And, yeah. Well, I'm going to de- delve black into it more because I'm just kind of getting into it. So yeah, I'll learn more about it. Black men, black people. Uh, yeah. There are many critics and, and those who throw shade and even hate toward it. But again, I'm going to keep on loving myself regardless, you know, and that's, that's the thing. There you go. Well, thank you yeah. again. I really have enjoyed this conversation. It's been wonderful. Uh, so nice to see you. And uh, I hope I hope we talk again real soon. Okay. I thank you. And the same, the same from me. There's a feeling is mutual. Keep on doing what you're doing. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyond belief sobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.